to this morning, we're going to jump right in to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3. Paul writes, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach such, such false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculation rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for the lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, murderers, sexually immoral, those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders, liars, perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. Well, we've recently transitioned to this book of 1 Timothy. And the book of 1 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul to his disciple, to his spiritual son, he calls him, Timothy. So his first the very right out of the gate, his first instruction to Timothy is to stay in Ephesus, to keep watch over the body there, and specifically ward off those that would spread false doctrines. So we see the Apostle Paul come into Ephesus as a missionary. He preaches the gospel, and he then plants a church in Ephesus, right? And then he hands that church leadership over to Timothy. And then sometime later, he's writing this letter back to Timothy to encourage him. But ultimately, this book is a how-to instructional manual to Timothy on how to do church, how to live life together as a body of Jesus. And we saw last week, Steve talked about the true gospel. So he was talking about doctrine, or what is true or false doctrine. And Steve used the example last week of um, when a teller starts at the bank. Um, one of the things that they do is they're given the money, right? The, and they're, they're, they're supposed to look at it, touch it, get to know it, know all of the little nuances of what all of the bills look like. And the purpose of that is so that when something fake comes in, when the funny money comes in, they can recognize it because they're so familiar. They know so well what the real money looks like that this is so evidently not the real deal. So that's what we talked about last week, the true gospel, that Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again for us to save us from our sin. He died as a substitute for us so that through him, we may have eternal life. That's the gospel. But we see here in Ephesus that there's this culture, there's this 
push by some to alter that true doctrine. They're starting to want to add things back into the gospel. And Paul calls it false doctrine. So what we're seeing here is for thousands of years, the people of Israel were, were under the law of Moses. If you've ever read Leviticus, uh, if you've not read Leviticus, I would, I would encourage you to do that. I don't know if I encourage you to do it early in the morning or late at night. It can uh, get a little dry sometimes, but at the same time, it's so critical to know what that says. And we'll talk a little bit more about why it's so critical. But to know what that law was, to know what over the course of a thousand, gosh, thousands of years that these Israelites were subject to all of these rules and regulations for perfection, right? The, whole, the, the idea was that if they perfectly fulfilled the law, that that would be the path to salvation. Now we'll talk about what the alternative is. That's the whole point of today. But for now, we see that these these laws, these things are being added into the gospel. And I know so often, Steve says it all the time, and, and Paul's so clear about it, that the gospel plus anything equals not the gospel. It's not to, it cannot be added to. The gospel in and, in and of itself, in its simplest form, that Jesus died and rose again, and he died for our sins— and if we believe in him, we have eternal life. That's the gospel. Nothing's to be added to it. But why? Well, ultimately, the law produces death. The, and we'll talk a lot about that this morning. But the law in and of itself is enable to produce life. More than once we've talked about the law and its complete inability to do what needs to be done, namely bringing people to faith in Jesus. No, no amount of law keeping can change our verdict from guilty to not guilty. No amount of law keeping can get us right with God. No amount of law keeping can justify us or acquit us of the sin. Nothing in the law <clears throat> can cause us to be accepted in the believing, saving faith that Jesus can and our only hope is that we would look away from striving to keep after this law and that we would turn to Jesus by faith in him and in his righteousness transferred to us and his pardon covering us is our great hope, not law-keeping. Law-keeping does not have the power to lead us to a life of love and sacrifice. It's not going to come from that. You can put a list in front of me. Now, we all know, if you've been with us for any amount of time, you know how much I like lists. I am a credit analyst at U.S. Bank. My whole life is lists. And uh, the longer the list that I have, the happier I am, because it just means I don't have to figure out what the rest of my day looks like. If I walk into the day and I have 20 things on my list, that's awesome. I'm just checking it off. The problem is the law, you keep checking and checking and checking, and it never ends, and it never will and you'll never get to the end and it will never fulfill and i even i don't want a list that never ends only living life according to the gospel apart from the law can give us that salvation 
The law can't do it. It can't justify. It can't sanctify. Romans 8, 3 so says, For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh, God did that by sending his own son. Romans 7, 4, it says, Therefore, brothers, you were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, meaning that he died by faith, we were united to him in his death, and that death became our death. And when we died, we died to the law. And the law is only valid to those who were alive. But now we're dead in that. Now he raised us back up outside of the law that we might be joined together with him who was raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We were bound to the law, but in his death, we were dead to the law. So then the question becomes, what shall we do with the law? What do we do with the first few books of the Bible? What do we do with the Ten Commandments and all the other commands in the Old Testament? What do we do with the statements like in David, in the book of Psalms? He says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And his law, he meditates day and night. The law, Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. They are more desirable than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. In 119, he simply says, oh, how I love your law it is my dead meditation all day. What do we do with that? And many of you would say, well, yeah, Jay, that's David. That's the Old Testament. Jesus hadn't come yet. He is still bound by the law. All he knew was the law. And David, yes, he found delight in it because the Lord had revealed to him the purpose of it. And that was to show him how far he was from the Lord. He meditated on it, not to embody all of the works of it. He was bound to do all of those things. <clears throat> Excuse me. He was bound to do all of those things, but he found the joy in meditating on it because he recognized it was to point us to God. The purpose of the law isn't to fulfill it through the works. It's to be transformed by the recognition of the fact that we can't do it. But I would also say that Paul talks about the law. New Testament, after Jesus died and raised again. In Romans 7, 22, he says, For I joyfully concur with the law of God. A couple of verses later in 7.25, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Well, in Romans 3.19.24, he says this, Paul writes, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned, fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely between the redemption, sorry, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ. Jesus, here we see in Romans a tie to our text in Timothy, the two show us the way that the law is to be properly used in order to produce fruit. In verse 8 in Timothy, it says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. So here Paul tells us, okay, there's a way to use the law properly and improperly. There's a way to use it right. There's a way to use it not right. So he, he, he tells us there is a way to do this right and wrong way. My guess is that failing to die to the law is inherently the wrong way to use it. But let's see what it says here. In verse 5 through 7, he says what the goal is in his preaching and ministry and why certain people have failed in reaching this goal. In verse 5, he says what? The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal and how to get there. Notice that the path to love is not the works of the law. In other words, the way to pursue love is by focusing on the transformation of the heart, the awakening and strengthening of our faith. Love is not produced, not love is not pursued first by focusing on this list of behavioral commandments, behavior modification things that strive to conform us to him. Those are the things that we actually have to die to. We see here that there are teachers who then are not, who are not using the law the right way. They're not using it properly. He introduces us to, to some guys who are making a mess of the law and not arriving at the goal of love. For some men, straying from these things, meaning, straying from the things, meaning a pure heart, good conscience and a sincere faith, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, waiting to be, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand what they're saying, or the matters about which make, they make their confident, confident assertions. You see, they're using the law in such a way that's leading to meaningless discussion, straying from the true gospel, and arguably to decisive, divisive things. They're not using the law in a way that points towards the gospel, points towards love. The teachers don't even understand the goal. The goal is not to pursue the works of the law in order to achieve salvation through the doing of the law. The goal of the law is inner spiritual transformation revealed in the fact that we can never do it on our own. They don't get it. Paul says that they don't know what they're talking about. They're trying to teach the law, but ultimately by trying to teach something that they don't understand, they're turning aside from the matters of the heart and conscience and faith, and they're not arriving at the goal of love. Isaiah 29 says, They come near me with their mouths, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's what's going on here. They... They know what the word says, but it hasn't transformed them. So they're just reading it for the sake of reading it. They're teaching what they don't understand because their hearts haven't been changed in such a way that they can understand the law for what it is. And I think there's a really evident and critical lesson we have to learn 
in that. There are hundreds, maybe thousands of people today that call themselves teachers of the law. In some capacity, whether it be on TV or in books and messages, there are many that call themselves, consider themselves, promote themselves as teachers of the law. How to perfect your law, marriage law. How to raise your children, law. How to properly spend and plan your finances, law. Church growth, law, leadership. How to evangelize, law. Justice, law. But the question becomes, and we have to be so on guard with this, all of these teachings, just like back then, all of these teachings, we have to know the gospel because we have to be able to look through those teachings. We have to be able to look through those words to see, are those teachings truly founded in a biblical way? See, we have the benefit today of having all these different resources. We have the Bible, we have commentaries, and, and all these different things that help to put all of this stuff together to help us to understand how to look into Scripture, to how to see through these teachings. <clears throat> but 2,000 years ago, they didn't have that. You see, the church in Ephesus, we'll just use the church there. Timothy was in charge of the church. But we also know that there were all of these different individual, smaller home churches. So there was the church in Ephesus made up of all of these smaller sections. And if I was the teacher, the head of this section right here, you didn't have a lot of resources to be able to, to, to figure out if I was telling the truth or not. You had to take it <clears throat> on my word for the most part whether or not this stuff was true. Because I could stand up here and I could tell you all of these things and I could just write stuff up here and quote scripture. Now I promise this does come directly from the Bible. I promise it is, this is legit. But if you don't verify that, if you don't look at this and say, that's Romans 3, we have a Bible, yeah, that's Romans 3, okay, I can see that, and I can see where he's tying Romans into Timothy, because we see that. But if you didn't have this, they didn't have that. So they just had to take it upon themselves to just assume that I'm telling them the truth. So I could very easily take the gospel, and I could start adding whatever I wanted, because that's, to a degree, our sinful human nature. That's why Paul was so adamant with Timothy. No, you need to stay there, and you need to go from place to place, and you need to keep, uh, keep alert and keep your ears out and keep your eyes out for these false teachers and actually make sure that they're teaching the true gospel, the true doctrine, because so many places, there's so much information today. And if we're not consistently on our guard, we're going to get bamboozled by it. I know I've got a 13-year-old, and whatever this YouTube personality says, that goes. I, and, and it just is what it is. And sometimes I have found myself recently 
in arguments with my 13-year-old because some guy on the internet said something that he took his truth and now I have to try to play defense and show him that there's no truth in that at all. <clears throat> as parents, as spouses, and just us individually. Guys, I've been scrolling through stuff, and there's people that stand up on pulpits. Man, they're fired up. They're yelling, and they're worked up, and they're passionate about what they believe. But, man, I'll tell you what, that doesn't mean what's coming out of their mouth is true. We have to be on guard at all times. I'll tell you, and just as a side note, parents, all the more so. We need to be knowing what, not just, and this is the gospel, absolutely. This is what, is, what are people feeding our kids as far as what, who Jesus is, who, and what, you know, what is it to how to follow him and how to live our lives. That, that's, that's just, <laughs> it's an important, but just a part of what's going on. What, what teachers today would find themselves in Paul's and Timothy's crosshairs saying, boy, you don't even know what you're talking about. You don't get it. You think you get it, but you don't. Because your heart has not been transformed by the power of Jesus. There's no way that you can understand the gospel. And you're just blowing smoke. We also see in this text today that the law is not for the righteous. So what is the proper use of the law? In verse 8 it says, but we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Verse 9 explains, first it involves realizing that the fact that the law is made for a righteous person. Not made for a righteous person, apologies, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. He lists examples of law-breaking, and just in case any of those specific things may not apply to you, as per his usual in his big lists, he has a catch-all. In this case, at the very end, it ties back to our text from last week, and he says, and for whatever else is contrary to sound <clears throat> doctrine so if you're living your life in such a way that includes everything in this list and anything that would be contrary to the gospel of god <clears throat> that's what the list is for it's not to pick on or call out any specific sin it's to identify a list of people who are still under the confines of the law and not covered by the blood of jesus now let's be clear that list is not exclusive to not knowing Jesus, he's saying there's those that are saved that are covered by the blood and, a, and then a list representing those that are still on their own, that are still living the way of the world, that have not given their lives to the Lord. The law is for them. Actually sounds a lot like, if you were with us way back in May of 21, we preached on Galatians in chapter 3. In verse 19, he says this, Why then was the law given? It was added because of transgression until the seed to whom the promise referred had come. 
The law was given through angels and entrusted to a mediator. A mediator, however, implies more than one party, but God is one. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given, if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly be able to come through the law. If there was any piece of the law that had the ability to impart life, then righteousness could come through that, but it didn't. There was no piece of the law that could actually live and impart life. 22. But scripture has locked every uh, locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised being given through faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe before the coming of this faith we were held in custody under the law locked up un, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed so the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So Paul asks, why then the law? Because the law was added 400 and 430, 425, 30 years after Abraham was justified by faith. Was the law added because of righteousness? No. The law was added because of transgressions. It was added because these, this list in 1 Timothy, right? And the law had a special role to play. It was this rigorous, detailed, if you, again, read Leviticus, it is very detailed. It is very difficult. It is very rigorous standard of behavior that was designed, Paul says, to lock people up or be a guardian over Israel until Christ came and justification by faith could be focused on him. The law commanded and condemned, but pointed to a redeemer who was to come. I believe in verse 9, this is what Paul is talking about. The law is not made for a righteous person, but those who are lawless. In other words, the law has done, if the law had done its condemning and convicting work, if the law had done its condemning and convicting work to bring you to Christ for justification and transformation, then it is not made for you anymore. If the law does what it's designed to do, point us to the gospel, then in the case of salvation, it's no longer for you anymore. I think we see this in verses 10 and 11, <clears throat> where does behavior come from that is not contrary to sound teaching and in accord with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God? It comes from a clean heart. And the good conscience and sincere faith that comes with the truth of the gospel. The law does not produce a life of love <clears throat> in accordance with the gospel. So what does that mean? for us. Well, it means that all of those things that were formally required of us for righteous living are not abandoned. Christ did not come to abandon the law, but to fulfill it. But instead of having to do things, we're compelled by the love of Jesus 
to do those things. I can't, I've, it, this has been stuck in my head, the verse that Steve talked about a few weeks ago on Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, he talks about being transported effectively to the throne room of God. All of a sudden, he, there he stands before God on his throne, the angels, the whole deal. And his immediate reaction, I'm sure, is the reaction of most of us. Woe is me, I'm undone. <laughs> I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, there's nothing left. And then he sees this angel come towards him. He grabs a coal off of the fire and he brings it. He flies towards him. And I can only imagine he's thinking, this is it. I'm done. But instead of that coal disintegrating him, it incinerates his sin. And the recognition of that removal of his sin automatically compels him to just say, Lord, I'm yours. I have nothing. My time is your time. You tell me what's next. I'm available in any way to do whatever it is that you would have me do. His perspective, his life, his heart is radically changed. So with us, for those of us who have found the great grace and love that comes with the gospel of Jesus and the freedom that comes with knowing him, we no longer have to do things. We're compelled by the love of Jesus to do those things. I no longer am required to go to work. I'm no longer required to raise my kid. I'm no longer required to do these things. I get to do these things. The Lord's given me an opportunity in all things, and I get to do them. I don't have to do them. We're not bound by the law, but I would argue that our charge sometimes is more important and more difficult. Because like I said, if you just give me a list, make it real clear, Make it step by step. I'll just go through, all right, I got that. I didn't do that. I didn't eat that today. I didn't, I did this. I didn't do that. But our call, Jesus says to be perfect as I am perfect. Now, for those of us who, have, who know, that's the call. That's the direction of our lives. We know that we can never be perfect. But the call is to pursue perfection. It's to be available at any time to do whatever it is that the Lord has us to do. See, the thing about the law is I can fit all that into my daily life. The Lord's calling me to just be available to him whenever. And when he says go, I'm ready. So what are we to do with the law? Because he said he didn't come to abolish it, he came to fulfill it. So there has to be a value there. Well, I would say that we're to read it. 
We're to know it. We're to meditate on it. The worship team can come. To know what we've been saved from. To recognize the life that was lived, that was required to be lived before Jesus. To recognize that. To be compelled that I don't want to have to live that way. I get to live this way. That pointing, it continues. I read the law and I'm like, Jesus, you're so good. I, have, I remember reading through some of this and I, all I could think was, man, I am so glad. Lord, you're so good. Jesus, thank you that we're no longer bound to this in death. I get to do this. But we're to know God. We're to know the God of the Old Testament. John 10 says that Christ and the Father are one. So to know God, the God of the Old Testament, is to know Christ. The more you see him, God, the more you see his glory, the more you treasure his worth, the more you'll be changed into his likeness. And the way that he loved will love. Which, according to Romans 3, is fulfillment of the law. To love like Jesus loved. We're to meditate on it, we're to read it, we're to know it. We're to be compelled by it to Jesus. Now, if you're here today and you find yourself still being burdened by that law, if you're here today and you've not made Jesus the Lord of your life, if you've not accepted him, as Lord of your life. The bad news is that you will continue on your own to try to fulfill all of these things. Spinning your wheels. Jay, it can't be so bad. It's just a list. But like I said, that list just keeps going and it never fulfills and you will spin your wheels. The good news is we're no longer you no longer have, must, you don't have to be bound by that. You don't have to be. Because Jesus did come. <clears throat> and he did live a perfect life. He did fulfill the law. He did die. He was raised again to fulfill that. And in believing in him, bring salvation to all of those who know and trust him. If you've not heard that today, that's good news. And it begs the question, what are you going to do with it? Heads bowed and eyes closed. That's the, that's, the, that's the question. When it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the law being fulfilled in Jesus, do you find yourself bound to the law or do you find yourself bound to Jesus? If you're here today and you've not made that decision, you're just one prayer away. I love what Pastor Steve says, what better thing to do on a Sunday morning in a room 
filled with a bunch of people who know and trust the Lord than to acknowledge Jesus for who he is and let us celebrate along with you that amazing life change, that first step towards a life of freedom. So if that's you, and you've never given your heart to the Lord, just a sign of an upraised hand, we would love to pray with you. Lord, I'm done doing this on my own. I'm done spinning my wheels. I'm done trying to figure out what all of these things mean. I just, I surrender to you. Lord, send me where you will. I trust you and I know you. If that's you, we'd love to pray with you. Well, maybe that's not you. Maybe at some point in your life, you've given your heart to the Lord, but now you find yourself in a place that you're far from him. Doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means that the things of this world, the laws, the rules, are creeping in. And they, they've, got your, they've got your mind. They've got your heart. And they're telling you things like, now nah, you can't go back. No, you've made too many mistakes. No, you've walked away from him. He doesn't want you back. You messed up. That's a lie. Because Jesus covered that. And if you find yourself feeling far from him today, the good news is he never left. Even when we can't see him, even when the storms around us swirl so great that he seems so far from us, he's right with us. And you're one prayer away from being realigned with him. If that's you and you find yourself far from him today, and you, Jesus, I want you back in the steering wheel of my life. I want you back in control and Lord of my life. Just a sign of an upraised hand. We would love to pray with you. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, Lord, you're so good. We worship you today. We honor you. Lord, we thank you that you've revealed to us the law, but then you've taken it and you've fulfilled it through the power of Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you give us the ability to know you, to trust in you, to follow you. And I pray today that every single person in this room, watching online, would put their trust in you. Lord, that they would find themselves walking alongside of you, eager and filled with joy on what is next. Lord, we know you keep your promises and we thank you for that. So right now, we lift this last, these last moments up to you. May they honor you. Lord, we thank you. We praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.